chapter 1. We'll read the first chapter. We take as our text verses 7 through 14. And I won't reread that, so we pay careful attention to that section of the passage. It's my intention in the coming weeks to preach a series of sermons through the first part of the book of Exodus. And so this is that introductory sermon. We hear God's word here in Exodus chapter 1. Now these are the names of the children of Israel which came into Egypt. Every man and his household came with Jacob. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. And all the souls that came out of the loins of Jacob were seventy souls, for Joseph was in Egypt already. And Joseph died, and all his brethren, and all that generation. And the children of Israel were fruitful, and increased abundantly, and multiplied, and waxed exceeding mighty, and the land was filled with them. Now there arose up a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. And he said unto his people, Behold, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come on, let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply, and it come to pass, that when there falleth out any war, they join also unto our enemies, and fight against us, and so get them up out of the land. Therefore they did set over them taskmasters to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh treasure cities, Python and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were grieved because of the children of Israel. And the Egyptians made the children of Israel to serve with rigor. And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage in mortar and in brick and in all manner of service in the field. All their service wherein they made them serve was with rigor. And the king of Egypt spake to the Hebrew midwives, of which the name of the one was Shipra, and the name of the other Pua. And he said, When ye do the office of a midwife to the Hebrew women, and see them upon the stools, if it be a son, then ye shall kill him. But if it be a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God, and did not as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the men children alive. And the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said unto them, Why have ye done this thing, and have saved the men children alive? And the midwives said unto Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are lively and are delivered ere the midwives come in unto them. Therefore God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and waxed very mighty. And it came to pass, because the midwives feared God, that he made them houses. And Pharaoh charged all his people, saying, Every son that is born ye shall cast into the river, and every daughter ye shall save alive. We read God's word that far. May God bless his word to our hearts. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, God gives the gift of faith as a bond that unites us to himself by the spirit of Jesus Christ. The activity of faith is believing. We are bound to Christ, and now the activity of that faith is believing. Lord's Day 7 and question and answer 22 talk about the fact that the Christian believes all things promised 
in the gospel. Now, what is the gospel? The gospel is set forth in history and in facts. The New Testament, as you know, begins with four gospel narratives. Those narratives speak of the historical Jesus. If the facts of Jesus are not true, then the doctrines fall away. And the theology about Jesus, then, is false. The Old Testament begins with five books of historical accounts of God's work with his church. Because of that connection between faith and the truths of history, it's not surprising that critics attack the first chapters in the Old Testament and the first chapters in the New Testament. If they can undermine the historical facts that undergird the doctrine, then they think they can do away then with the wonder of salvation, and salvation that is no longer of God. We look this evening and in the coming weeks at the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus reveals truths of the gospel that are essential to our salvation. The book has as its theme misery, deliverance, and gratitude. And you're familiar with that theme. That's the experience of the child of God. As every day we experience the reality of our sin, the forgiveness and deliverance that is ours, and the thankfulness we owe to God. That's also the theme of the Heidelberg Catechism. In this theme, Christ is prominent. And so we see Christ here in Exodus. Now God reveals in this book his power in keeping his covenant promise to deliver his children out of bondage and to bring them into the land of Israel. God would do so, and he would do so according to the promise that he had spoken to Abraham. The escape, the way out of the exodus, out of Egypt, is a picture of our spiritual deliverance. We are in bondage to sin of ourselves by nature. God marvelously and graciously frees us from that bondage. That bondage cannot be overcome by anything of ourselves. It's all a wonder of God's grace. And this history is a history of God, the wonder of his glory and his deliverance of his people in marvelous and magnificent ways. We look at Exodus as our exodus. As we see in this history our deliverance, and we see rich lessons that are taught us through this history. Now, there are types and shadows that are found throughout the Old Testament, included here in the book of Exodus. These types point to spiritual wonders and realities. The people of Israel are a type of the church. Egypt is a picture of the wicked world and the bondage to sin. We have Pharaoh as a type of the devil, and the devil's attack on the church as she's found in the midst of the world. Moses is a type of Christ and the deliverer that God raises up in order to deliver his people. And then Canaan, a picture of heaven as God brings his church into the glory and the wonder of that heavenly Canaan. Now Moses wrote all five of the first books of the Bible. Historically, the setting here is... At the conclusion of the life of Joseph, Joseph died at the conclusion of Genesis, being 110 years old. 
the time period between Joseph's death and the beginning of Exodus or Moses' birth is about 400, about 300 years. And then there are 430 years between then Jacob and his family coming into Egypt and the Exodus. Now, you children remember how Israel got into Egypt. Remember, first of all, it started when the brothers of Joseph sold him as a slave into Egypt. God ordaining that. And even though they meant evil, God meant it for good in order that Joseph now would be in Egypt and Joseph could be used by God then in order to prepare the way for the rest of his family to come down to Egypt and live for a time. That history here is before us. Joseph's family moved. They settled in the land of Goshen where they were able to take care of their cattle, and they had abundance of grass, much water, and now we have, some years later, this account. The family records of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob testified of the promise that God would deliver and God would bring them out. And now we look at that. We look at it, first of all, under the theme, the bondage in Egypt, noting the evil, the goodness, and the gospel as it's present here. Now there rose up a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph, we read in verse 8. Joseph, as we know, was a well-regarded ruler in Egypt. He had done great things for Egypt. God had raised him up at a time when Egypt was facing famine and hardship. And God knew that there would be seven good years, and then there would be seven lean years. And so unto that end, God had raised up Joseph. And Pharaoh, you recall, after Joseph had given him the answer to his dreams, placed Joseph then in a position of prominence and rule in Egypt. Pharaoh held Joseph in high regard, understanding what Joseph meant to Egypt. And he demonstrated that by his care for Joseph's family. So that once Joseph's family was exposed and Jacob and his family were revealed, Pharaoh was demonstrating kindness and he brought Jacob and his family into Egypt, he gave them a place. In that, we see God preserving his church in the isolation of Egypt. Jacob and his family were living in Canaan. For years, they had been associating with the Canaanites. Increasingly, they were intermingling with the Canaanites. And the result was that their generations were beginning to intermarry. And there was beginning to be an influx in the thoughts and the idolatry and all of the sins of the Canaanites. The distinctiveness of God's people was at stake. And so God opened a way, having ordained it years previous, in which he would preserve them until such a time as the Canaanites had filled the cup of iniquity and were ready to be destroyed. And that's the time when, 430 years later, the Israelites come back into the land of Canaan, now with the command to destroy all of the Canaanites. During this time period now, between Jacob's family settling in Goshen and now the rise of this new king, we read that the Israelites had increased exceedingly, according to verse 7. Seventy souls had entered into Egypt, adding Joseph and his family, about 74, 75. At the time of the Exodus, there are 600,000 men 
above 20 years old, beside women and children, according to Numbers 1, verse 46, which would mean a total of between 2 and 3 million Israelites now that are settled in Goshen. For 74, 75 people to reach this goal in 430 years means that every 25 years they would have to double, which is entirely and easily possible and is demonstrated from history. The words, therefore, of Genesis 1 verse 28 were taken seriously by the people of God. God had stated, and God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. God's people had taken seriously that command. They had prospered and God had blessed them. God's blessing is evident here upon his people. Now we know wherever God's children are, God will bless them and God will take care of them. God is watching over them. He's upholding his church. He's preserving his saints. And regardless of their circumstance, regardless of their situation, God's blessing is upon his children. This great care of God is evident here in Egypt. And it's a care that God displays toward you and toward me. Our great God cares for us. He upholds us. He cares for us by giving us cancer. He cares for us by putting us in circumstances of hardship and surgery. He cares for us with the trials and the afflictions that he places on our li- in our lives by the effects of COVID that we wrestle with. God causes hardship, and through that hardship, he is the one who is granting his blessing upon his church. To some he gives spouses, to others he gives children, to some he withholds that, and yet, Out of God's covenant love, those blessings are evident. Israel now finds herself in bondage and yet under the blessing of Jehovah God. God saw the threat that Israel faced in Canaan. God brought them to Egypt. Now God saw the threat that Israel faced in Egypt. The lifestyle of Egypt was becoming attractive for the people. The life of ease that they were enjoying was creating an occasion for temptation. And as they were enjoying the ease of Egypt's life and culture, they would increasingly desire to remain. And that comes out later on. After Moses and Aaron lead the people out of Egypt, there's murmuring, there's complaining. Continually the people are saying, we wish we were back in Egypt. We had it so good in Egypt. God sees that reality here. They enjoyed Egypt. They were beginning to become too comfortable in Egypt. They still had Joseph's bones and they had the command from Joseph to bring them out and to bring them back in the land of Canaan. But they forgot now the testimony. They forgot the commands. And they began to love, as later on is put, the flesh pots of Egypt. So out of love... God now determines the cure for this complacent people. And that cure is a new Pharaoh who rises who knows not Joseph. This Pharaoh doesn't care about Joseph. He doesn't care about the family of Joseph. Now what it means that he did not know is difficult to discern because all of Egypt would have known of Joseph. 
And even more than Joseph, they knew of the God of Joseph. They knew it wasn't Joseph that had revealed the Pharaoh's dreams. Joseph made clear, I can't do that. This is God alone that is capable of doing so. And Joseph had testified continually of God and of God's glory and God's greatness. It was God that gave the seven plentiful years. It was God that gave them wisdom to gather and to preserve in order that they might be kept during the seven difficult years. It was God who had flourished and prospered Egypt during that time period. But this king now doesn't care about Joseph, doesn't care about God. And just who this king was, there's a possibility that it was a different dynasty. And therefore, it may have been someone that really did not know the history of Egypt. But this one now rises to the throne with no care for Joseph, no care for Joseph's God, and sees as his responsibility now to try to preserve Egypt by ultimately destroying the Israelites. He seeks to persecute them. But he does so with a view to cutting them off, really annihilating them. Now, while God is sovereign over all of this, and God ordains this as necessary now for the good of his church, God makes use of means. And Pharaoh is a tool that is used now by God. Pharaoh has his own wicked reasons for employing this hard toil. He's scared. He's frightened of their size. And he mentions the fact that They're multiplying, and perhaps if there would be a war, they would join with the enemy and could easily overcome the Egyptians. Now, we don't know what size Egypt was at this point. We don't even know if that's a reality, a real concern. But this is expressed as Pharaoh's reasons now. But added to that, and so get them out of the land. So one sees the conflicting sense there of Pharaoh. On the one hand, he wants to destroy them. On the other hand, he doesn't want them to leave because he has a selfish ambition and desire for which he can make use of them. Behind this even more is the devil. We see here the devil and his attempt to destroy God and God's church. Egypt is a picture of the evil world in which we live. And Pharaoh is a picture of the devil as the devil seeks to destroy the people of God and to eliminate them out of the world. And so Pharaoh subjects them to bondage now. We read in in verse 14 that they had to work hard. They had to make bricks of clay. Then they had to take those bricks of clay and use them in building. And they were to build those treasure cities for Egypt in order to add to Egypt's wealth. This bondage is bitter. The word that's used here for that bitterness of the bondage is a word that in verse 14, literally means bile. And we're familiar with that. Perhaps we're sick and we're throwing up and pretty soon we vomit so much that there's nothing left to come out. And all that gets that that bile and it causes a bitter taste in our mouth. That bitterness is what was Israel's experience now. Bitter bondage. And it was a bondage they couldn't escape. There was no way out of it. They were put to work in the fields, all manner of service in the field, verse 14, spending their days from sunup to sundown. And then they still had their own work they had to take care of. They still had to tend to their own flocks, their own herds. There was no profit, no time for themselves. The Egyptians made them labor hard for them. 
And taskmasters were set over them, which were cruel. Taskmasters that would whip them and would seek to use them again for their own benefit. And these taskmasters didn't care about their health or their well-being. The Israelites were dispensable and disposable. If they killed one, there was more that could come forward in order to work. Cruel and wicked were these taskmasters. And under their cruel eye now, the Israelites are being oppressed. Now this is a picture of the spiritual bondage and depravity of sin. Sin takes us into its grasps. And the devil seeks to use us in his service so that we can promote his agenda. The wicked despise God. They want nothing to do with God. And Pharaoh now represents those wicked, and he represents the devil. Ultimately here, Pharaoh is saying, does what God says really matter? Is God really important? Who is this God that we would even bow before him or acknowledge him? And he takes the lead now in ignoring God and persecuting the people of God. In his greed, he presses on. He wants to use them for his own wealth and for his own benefit. Now, all men know that there's a God. And all men know that that God is a God who must be served. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And the reason he's a fool is because he knows better. Deep down, he knows God. What do the wicked do? Out of fear, they persecute. Now, we know the futility of that. History and the scriptures speak of the futility of that persecution. That persecution will not destroy, rather it becomes the seed of the church. But we find here that persecution evident. And that's the state of the world. The world hates and therefore the world opposes and the world persecutes. The world wants to re-identify you and me. They push Christ to the side. And as we read this morning out of John 15... They will hate you because they hated me. If you love the world, then they love you. But because your place is not in this world and because you are not given to the service of sin, they will hate you. Beloved, this is the world that you and I live in. This is the world in which we're raising our children. And we need to be aware of the threat of this world. This world hates God. It hates Christians. It persecutes the people of God. And it desires to push God out of all of society. We need to hear the word of God. And we desire God's word be preached with all boldness, realizing that's what the church of God needs. But as that word is preached in all of its boldness, and as we seek to live it, the persecution will only intensify. Egypt represents that hostile world. And Pharaoh represents the devil as he's seeking to destroy the people of God and any kind of reference or any kind of resemblance of God. This was a beautiful world from every earthly perspective. Egypt was gorgeous. Lush, green, well-watered. The place where the Israelites lived was beautiful. From every earthly perspective, there was a tremendous lure. They were lured into fellowship, into communion with this world. They were tempted to seek after the things that this world had to offer. And they were tempted to be comfortable in the midst of this world. 
We are not to love the world, nor the things that are in the world, because all that is in the world is not of the Father. The lust of the flesh, the pride of life, the lust of the eyes. And Pharaoh here now, as the prince of the world, the devil, who loves not God, loves not the people of God, is seeking to devour. A few weeks ago, we talked about the devil as a lion out of 1 Peter 5. And we think about that here. As a lion, the devil, seeking now to destroy the Israelites and seeking to bring down this people of God. We run, we flee from sin and from temptation. We know the horror of that sin and the way in which it brings us into bondage. Now Pharaoh was making men do his bidding. And that's the desire of the devil. The desire of the devil is that all men serve him. That all men be used to build his kingdom so that he can have all the glory and all the praise. He doesn't want God to be glorified. And so Pharaoh has the Israelites building his supply cities. The devil has men being used for his wicked agenda. And his wicked agenda is to engage in the things of this world and to make this world a glorious, powerful kingdom that will serve him and serve his wisdom and his will. Pharaoh speaks of that wisdom in verse 10. This isn't the wisdom of God. Come on, let us deal wisely with them. That's a wisdom that's devilish. It's a wisdom that is of the world. Now, we know that whenever the wicked and whenever the devil seeks to persecute God's people and thinks he can destroy them that way, he makes a huge mistake. That happened throughout the history of the world. Again and again, the devil thought he could destroy the people of God and make it so that Jesus would not come. But it never worked. God always was there. God was preserving his way. And what was the most fierce attempt? It would be the cross. The devil thought that he could destroy Jesus. And finally he had him there. And finally he brought about his destruction on the cross. Whereas God sovereignly used that event to establish the kingdom of Jesus Christ on the blood of his own son so that that kingdom would never be destroyed or overcome and so that his saints would be preserved to all eternity. That which the devil thought would bring about their destruction in reality used by God to secure the salvation of his church and the glory of his name. But We see the natural state of men depicted here in this history. All men of themselves are dead in sin. They're captive to the devil who controls the world. And in bondage to the devil, they're not able to do then that for which God originally created man, to love him, to serve him, and to pursue his will. And as such, living in that bondage, they don't even realize the horror of their bondage, nor can they in any way deliver themselves. There's no way that Israel could deliver themselves. There was no way out of themselves. And God uses this history to demonstrate salvation is all of God. Salvation is all of God's grace. Sin takes hold of us. And the power and the influence of sin is such that we are brought into its bondage. There's no freedom. Slave controls man's heart, will, and mind. And we become captive then to what the devil wants. We serve the devil. And we pursue his will and his way. That old man of sin remains in us until we die. God marvelously converts those who are his own. 
He gives us regeneration so that we know that we've been delivered from that bondage. And we can no longer be brought into that bondage. But nevertheless, that old man yet clings to us until we die. And as a result of it, that old man tries to bring us back into those sinful ways. And it shows itself in anger, impatience, laziness, complaining. It shows itself in our giving over to temptation. It's a picture of that power of sin within us. We need a redeemer. And that's the testimony of this history. Israel needs to be redeemed. How will Israel be delivered? Now Isaiah 61 talked about the manner in which God would bring about that deliverance. And Isaiah 61 was a messianic prophecy concerning the Messiah. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. That's the picture presented. We are bound to sin. And now we need a mediator. We need the Messiah to open that prison and to free us. God is sovereign over all that's taking place here in Egypt. He is sovereign over Pharaoh. Psalm 105, a beautiful psalm, recounts this history and it demonstrates in verses 23 and following. God is the one at work here. God is the one that was moving Pharaoh. He was the one that was behind all of this history. Now that raises questions. How would God allow this again? How could God be the one behind such severe affliction and bondage? God is chastening his people and he's afflicting them in order to deliver them. God's way is in the furnace. God's way is in the way of taskmasters. God is a God not only whose way is creation, but also the serpent. And God is ruling all things now for his glory and for his honor. And sin, affliction, troubles are part of God's way that direct us to see the need of our deliverance. As the Heidelberg Catechism teaches us, we need to know how great our sin and misery is so that we know the wonder and the joy of that deliverance. And we see that goodness here in this history. How is it seen? The more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. Verse 12. What an amazing testimony. As Pharaoh came down with all of his wrath on the people of Israel, he could not destroy them. He saw the fact that They're multiplying. They continue to get stronger. He's trying to destroy them, and rather, they're growing. They're increasing. God is flourishing them with the blessings that God had promised. And what were those blessings? God promised that he would make of his people as the sand of the seashore and as the stars of heaven without number. Persecution and hardship would not in any way bring an end to that promise. God would make use of that in order to grant his blessing. Again and again, the Bible assures us that hardship, trials are for our good. That God uses these things that hurt us and God turns them to our profit. 
That God makes use of all the troubles and all the struggles that we experience in life in order to help us to grow. These are expressions of his love. Despite their current situation here in Egypt, they are God's people. And God has placed his name on them and he will be with them and he will preserve them. So that we see, beloved, the marvelous love of God. God commands life out of death. Pharaoh is saying, die, and he's trying to kill them. And God is saying, live, and God is causing them to flourish. And we think of that incident in Ezekiel 16, where God comes upon that little baby that's left in her blood to die. And God comes to that one who's dead of herself and says, live. And the result is that that baby flourishes and becomes the bride of Jesus Christ, his church. God comes by his people in the midst of the oppression of the devil himself as he's seeking to bring about her destruction. And God says, live. And the power of God's word is such that his children flourish. They know his goodness. They know his mercy. They know his love. And they are rescued out of death into life. Now, beloved, not only is this the wonder by which God saves to himself his children, coming to us in our sin and breaking that bondage by a wonder of grace. We hear God speak to us and God says, live. And he gives us a new life that's from above. And we're rescued from the bondage of that sin and death. And we're given hope and joy, life everlasting. But this also is the wonder by which God preserves us throughout our lives as his children. We backslide. We see the appeal of the world. We begin to become enamored with the world and we begin to pursue the things of the world and the things of the flesh. We're like the Egyptians. And we begin marching with the world and pursuing the things of the world. And pretty soon we find ourselves increasingly in bondage, in hardship, in trouble. But God is jealous for his people. God will not allow the devil to have the upper hand. He will not allow Pharaoh to dictate things. He is God who has put his name on his church and on his children and he will bring forth the seed of the woman in and through them. We don't have to wait to see Christ here. Christ is in the word of promise which God has spoken to his people. And what was that word of promise? I will be with you. I will be with you. That word of promise is evident again and again, and we know it's fulfilled through Jesus Christ, God with man, Emmanuel. I am with you in the furnace. I am with you in the affliction. And I am with you in my Son who lives and dwells within you by his Spirit. The people of God, in the midst of bondage, and yet God is in the midst of them. They're going the way of the Egyptians. They're being persecuted by Pharaoh. Again, a picture of that to which we're all prone. This is our nature. We murmur. We complain. We're not satisfied. We live according to that old man. They had entered into Egypt as the people of God. And yet too soon they had learned the ways of Egypt and were finding them appealing. But the issue here is not merely a new king. 
It's also a new generation in Israel who rose up who were not trusting in God. And this comes out again and again after their deliverance. They wanted to go back. They wanted the leeks. They wanted the garlic. They're angry with Moses and Aaron. They want to go back and be like Egypt again. Without the grace of God, so we are. We go the way of the world. We go the way of sin. We get ourselves caught up in bondage. But God graciously and mercifully is with his people. And we say, why? Why wouldn't God cast them off? Why wouldn't God find another people with whom he could continue covenant? Why would God identify himself with them? And beloved, the answer is, God is faithful to his promise. God is a God of election. From eternity, he set his love on a people whom he would preserve and whom he would deliver. And now in time, that wonder of salvation is being revealed concretely through his deliverance of his people and through the coming of his son, the Messiah. And Christ is represented in Moses. Moses, the mediator, the deliverer, who points to Christ. This is what later the tabernacle, the temple, will be all about. God dwelling in the midst of her. And beloved, by faith we believe that. Do we believe that we are those who are the children of the Exodus? We have been brought out of bondage. We need to live it. So easy it is to be burdened with sin. We fight against those perverse thoughts. Our sinful nature does battle against us. We have to remind ourselves, I am not a child of bondage. I have been delivered. I am a people who have been redeemed. And as one who has been redeemed, I desire to show forth the praise of my God. I am one who has been delivered by the marvelous grace and wonder work of Jehovah God. And now through his Son, I show forth his praise. Beloved, we are a people of the Exodus. We are a people who are devoted to Jehovah as our Lord. It's not the devil, but Jehovah who rules us. And we seek and pursue his will, his way, and his glory. That's the manner in which the gospel is set forth here in this history. How does the devil try to depict that bondage? The devil tries to come to us and says, that bondage is sweet. That's the lie of the devil. The devil says, you can do whatever you want. You don't have to be accountable to anyone. You want true joy? Live it up. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter what you want to do. Pursue your lusts. Look upon anything you want. Pursue everything that you desire. That's the way of true joy and happiness. And the devil wants us to believe this. The way of darkness, the way of sin, that's the way of freedom. That's the way of liberty. And so he promotes the lie. He tries to convince us that it'll be far more fun if we walk in the ways of sin. And that's where colleges lure our students. And they sometimes try to emphasize to them, get away from your parents. Don't worry about the rules of the household anymore. Now you're on your own. And now you can do as you desire. And if you want to identify differently than you were previously, go ahead. That's going to be the way of joy. It's the way of freedom and liberty to now live how you want and do whatever you want and take whatever pronouns you desire. That's the way of liberty. Now, beloved, the truth is, that's the way of bondage. 
And that bondage is bitter. That bondage ends in death. Those in bondage, sadly, don't even desire to be delivered. Those in bondage don't even see themselves in trouble, sadly. We see a bit of that in this history as well. They're content to continue to a degree in that bondage. They really don't see their situation so bad, even though they are afflicted. Beloved, there is nothing in the world worse than being enslaved in sin. And we need to realize there is no liberty, but there is bondage in sin. And that bondage leads to death. And that's how we have to look at our sin. For the child of God who's been delivered by God's grace, we hate sin. We flee from it. We do not want to be brought back into that slavery, even though the devil is constantly tempting us. And sin can still do that to us temporarily for a time. Brings us into addictions, takes hold of us. And the devil is trying to use men and women to serve himself. He's greedy, but he's also fearful. And so he desires to get as many as he can to be part of his kingdom and to pursue his will. We are directed, beloved, to the one who bore our afflictions and who delivered us by his perfect obedience. He took not just the sins of which we were guilty in Adam. He took our actual sins, the sins you committed yesterday and this morning and today, and he took them upon himself and he paid the price of them so that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Beloved, that's liberty. Liberty is to be freed from the bondage of sin. It's to be freed from the tyranny of the devil. It's to know Jesus Christ as my Lord and the delight to serve him and to pursue his will. When Israel is delivered, there's no possibility of men taking any credit. And you children know that history. God sends ten powerful plagues that we're going to look at causes the waters of the Red Sea to be divided so that after Israel steps onto the other side and they see the destruction of Egypt, all they can do is praise and thank God. That deliverance is nothing of themselves. It's all of God and all of God's grace. And so it is, beloved, in your life and my life. God ordains things in such a way that every door of escape is closed. And the only way is through the Messiah. Jesus Christ. And God ordains that he alone is the one able to open that door so that all glory and all praise is directed to him alone. And so God raises up Moses as the one who points to that deliverer. But Moses was a man. He would fail. And Jesus Christ would not fail. Jesus Christ would preserve and he would keep his children to all eternity. That's the gospel of the Exodus. That's the glorious gospel of salvation and deliverance through Jesus Christ. And so, beloved, as we live in the midst of this world, we remember the chastening hand of Jehovah God. God's chastening hand is on us in love. The punishment's been removed. Jesus took that punishment upon himself. And he makes that way of escape so that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The bondage of sin is broken. The devil can no longer bring us into slavery again to sin. God impresses upon our hearts. Jesus Christ is Lord. 
And he unites us by a true and living faith to Christ so that we serve him and we delight in his service. God leads his children through affliction. He leads them through struggles as he showers his love upon us and as he humbles us and he teaches us our weakness and he teaches us to look to him. As children of the exodus, to know that he is our deliverer. He is the one who's freed us from that bondage. And he's the one who gives us now to know the joy and wonder of that salvation. Pharaoh saw the Israelites, and Pharaoh saw the fact that they were increasing. Now that's striking. The more he tries to destroy them, the more they are prospering. And he knows there's something going on. And that's what causes fear. He knows God is behind it. And beloved, so it is with the world in which we live. They see you. They see me. They know there's something else going on in our lives. The temptation sometimes is to hide, to retreat from the world. But God calls us to be in the midst of this world. He calls us to shine as lights, testifying to the marvelous wonder of His goodness and of the salvation that is ours in Him. And as we do so, we realize others are going to see. And that's going to prompt hatred. It's going to prompt persecution. It's going to prompt affliction. The devil is going to try to destroy us. He'll try to destroy our lives, to take away our jobs, to persecute us. But what's going to be the result? God will prosper his own. God is faithful. He has his mark upon us. And though the devil rages with all the fury of hell, God is in the midst of her, and she shall not be moved. We know the joy of our salvation and the wonder of God's preserving grace. And God works in us then a gratitude, a thankfulness. We know the sweetness of the rule of Jesus Christ. We know that the rule of Christ is not bondage. It is delight. It is joy. And there is nothing more precious than to know him as my Lord and my Savior. In that is true joy. In there is freedom. In the furnace, beloved, God is with us. In the lion's den, God was shutting the mouth of the lions. In the bondage of sin, God is present in his church. And he will deliver them for his glory and for his honor. Do you think the God who created all things and who worked such wonders on behalf of his church will leave his people? No. The God of the word of promise is with us. And his promise stands. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, we thank and praise thee for the wonder of thy love, thy goodness, and thy faithfulness toward thy sinful church. We thank thee for thy care. And we pray that thou wilt prosper us and our children by thy grace that thy name might be exalted and magnified. Keep us from sin, preserve us from evil, and strengthen us in the pursuit of the things that are good, the things that are right, the things that are lovely. Amen.